In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask you for pardon of my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. We are saved in hope. According to St. Paul writing to the Romans and Pope Benedict takes that as the title of one of his encyclicals, Spe Salvi. We are saved by hope or in hope, which makes sense because our salvation is something to which we're on the one hand looking forward and on the other hand we've already uh, received it. And it's a case of being faithful to it and living it out. And in his encyclical, Pope um, Benedict tries to uh, show the very many different ways in which we can live our lives according to hope, with a sense of optimism and confidence. Confidence in God's love and his power to help us. Confidence that with his help we can achieve our goal, we can reach heaven. He can bring us there. And also with a sort of confidence in the smaller hopes, because of the smaller hopes which keep us going during this life, which is another aspect, he points out, of the, the virtue of hope. Perhaps a, a less obviously theological aspect of it, but in a certain sense it is a quite theological aspect of it, because it goes back to the beginning of creation, to those uh, moments which are uh, recorded in the book of Genesis in which God over and over each day of creation says that it was good. God saw what he had made and behold it was good, indeed very good. So we can have a certain hope in this world as well and we can see it as a place in which we can discover God, we can find the goodness of God, his wisdom, and all the, the traces of his love and of his creation in so many different ways. So we Christians tend to look on the world with love and with hope. So with that in mind, I was thinking one way of uh, praying about this topic, the, our hope in God and our hope in in creation as well, in the world being uh, given us by God in order to bring us to, to heaven, is to look at a famous, uh, well, a fairly famous homily of uh, Saint, Saint Josemaria's, which he gave on the 8th of October 1967 in the University of Navarre in Pamplona in Spain. Because it's entitled Passionately Loving the World, not passionately loving heaven or passionately loving God, but passionately loving the world. And in it, he, he's trying to get across what 
Opus Dei has come to to bring to to the world uh, an aspect of the teaching of Christ, of the teaching of the Church, which is uh, able to give us this positive, affirmative approach to the world around us and to see it as something given by God and bringing us to, to God as well. And he, he starts the, um, the, the, the homily by talking about the Mass, because precisely he's saying Mass. It's an outdoor Mass, a very large crowd at the university. And um, he talks about how the Mass itself is the mystery of faith that binds together all the mysteries of Christianity. We are celebrating, therefore, that most sacred and transcendent act which we, men and women, with God's grace, can carry out in this life. Receiving the body and blood of our Lord is, in a certain sense, like loosening our ties with earth and time, so as to be already with God in heaven, where Christ himself will wipe the tears from our eyes, and where there will be no more death, nor mourning, nor cries of distress, because the old world will have passed away. So he gives a, a very high theology of the Eucharist at the beginning of the homily. But immediately he makes a sort of a caution, uh, cautions us uh, and, and says that this profound and consoling truth which theologians called the eschatological meaning of the Eucharist, you know, that meaning that points us forward towards, towards heaven, could be misunderstood. Indeed, this has happened whenever people have tried to present the Christian way of life as something exclusively spiritual, or better, spiritualistic, something reserved for pure, extraordinary people who remain aloof from the contemptible things of the world, or at most tolerate them as something that the Spirit just has to live alongside while we are on this earth. So you end up, as he says, um, in a kind of an ecclesiastical um, world. Um, the churches become the setting par excellence of the Christian way of life. And being a Christian means going to church, taking part in sacred ceremonies, in a special kind of world. Considered the kind of anti-chamber to heaven while the ordinary world follows its own separate uh, course. In this case, Christian teaching and the life of grace would pass by one another, um, brushing very lightly against the turbulent advance of human history, but never really coming into proper contact with it. So you've got sort of two parallel lines. The, the sort of spiritual, uh, ecclesial, and on the other hand, the world. And never the twain shall really meet or nourish one another. 
or have very much to do with one another. It's a complete kind of um, separation. And this is what he wants to kind of warn us uh, against. The, you know, seeing the temple, as it were, uh, the, as the, the place where the Christian life plays itself out, a kind of an antechamber of heaven where we uh, hide away almost from the world. Um, the, this, this, this won't do as far as he's concerned. This is uh, a caricature of what Christian life uh, means. And funnily enough, he uses the fact that he's saying mass in this outdoor setting. We, we've had experiences like in papal visits of masses like this, with huge crowds, obviously much bigger on papal occasions, uh, but big crowds, outdoors, uh, not the usual sort of setting that we imagine, that we, we expect for, for Mass. And he takes that sort of setting and, and says, well, this can help you to get what I'm talking about. He says, um, you know, reflect on the setting, he says, of our Eucharist, of our act of thanksgiving. We're in a unique temple. We might say that the nave is the, the campus of the university. The, the altarpiece, the university library. It was kind of the backing of the, the setting. Over there, the machinery for constructing new buildings. Above us, the sky of Navarre. And he kind of says, well, does this not Surely this shows us that everyday life, that the world is the, the true setting for our lives as Christians. Your daily encounter with Christ takes place where your fellow men, your yearnings, your work and your affections are. It is in the midst of the most material things of the earth that we are to sanctify ourselves, serving God and all humankind. So that's, you can, uh, I'm sure if you were there, you would have been quite impressed by the kind of evoking, his evoking the setting in that way. But you don't really have to be there just to imagine it. And it applies to us anyway, uh, that the, we are surrounded, we're in the midst of the world uh, the setting of our Christian life is precisely the fresh air, the world in which we live, the people that we know, the work we do, and so on. And God sort of awaits us um, in, 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 this, in this world. He's calling you, uh, St. Josemaria goes on in the homily, Does, doesn't this show you more clearly than ever, that God is calling you to serve him in and from the ordinary, secular, civil activities of human life. That's where you find God. That's where he's looking for you, you might say. That's where he's waiting for you to find him. And then he gives a list. Um, he waits for us every day in the laboratory, in the operating theatre, in the army barracks, the university, in the factory, 
the workshop, the fields, the home, and in all the immense panorama of work. Understand this well. There is something holy, something divine, hidden in the most ordinary situations, and it is up to each one of you to discover it. So God is there. There's something divine about all of the things that we touch and it's up to us to discover that. But obviously we know in order to discover God's presence in our work, in our family, in the challenges of our lives, things we try to solve, um, do something about, we know that we need God's grace to even to help us to, to see it to remind us of these things. It's not enough just to have a good intention. We need God to sort of tip us off a little bit. And and he does really, because he, he is, as it were, bumping into us in different ways. And, you know, waiting for us to bump into him, to discover him in, in, in all of these different things. It's not a, it's not that difficult, you might say. It's not as if he's hiding in order that we don't find him. He's hiding in order that we will find him. And he gives us the grace. He gives us the, the, the heads up that, you know, I'm there. You know, when you're coming up against a difficulty, well, that's the cross. I'm asking you to just carry a little bit of the cross for me. When something really goes well, then, and we feel like being grateful, uh, we sometimes say, as part of, you know, thankfully things turned out well, well, maybe we could turn that, thankfully, into something more personal and thank God that things turned out well. Because obviously God has a hand in all of those things and allows them to happen in some cases, in other cases perhaps more directly. But either way, we can thank God for everything because everything ultimately is good and God will draw good out of a lot of different things. So let's not escape the, um, you know, those ordinary th challenges and ups and downs of life to kind of imagine that we have to find a, a safe space somewhere we can be completely at ease and everything is good and then we're, we can be close to God. No, no, we can be close to God in all the, um, the hassles, the difficulties, the times when we're up against it. There we do also find God, or better, he finds us. So let's let him find us. Adam and Eve, they had to let God find him. Where are you? He asked. And he asks us the same thing. Where, where are you? And we can tell him, I'm in the middle of this problem. I'm trying to solve this. I'm getting uh, this job done. I'm trying to um, help this person. I'm trying to um, teach this person, whatever it might be. That's where I am. And that's where he looks for us and hopefully finds us. He, he then goes on, well, a little bit the same idea. I often said to the university students and workers who were with me in the 30s, you know, when he was starting off with the charism of Opus Dei and trying to explain it to people about, you know, what, 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 what had he seen on the 2nd of October? This idea that you can find God in your everyday life. That holiness is for everybody and it's usually through the everyday life that you that you can seek holiness and seek God. I, so I often said 
to the university students and workers who were with me in the 30s that they had to learn how to materialize their spiritual life. I wanted to warn them of the temptation, so common then and now, of leading a kind of double life. On the one hand, an inner life, a life related to God, and on the other hand, as something separate and distinct, their professional, social, family lives, made up of small, earthly realities. No, my children, he goes on, we cannot lead a double life. Uh, we cannot have a split personality if we want to be Christians. There is only one life made of flesh and spirit. And it is that life which has to become, in both body and soul, holy and filled with God. And so that's it. We Either we find God in ordinary, everyday life, or we'll never find him. We can't be waiting for some amazing, supernatural event to happen. Uh, no, it's in and through the ordinary things that God happens to us and is with us. He is closer to us than we are to ourselves. He is closer to everything that happens to us than the things themselves are because God is at the heart of everything. So Lord, help us to take this on board in our own setting. Unpromising and the same every day or whatever other way we might label them or label it, that there we can actually have a real life of relationship with God. We can turn to him feel him turning to us, realise that he's with us and that he never leaves us. Then he continues on in the homily by talking about the sacraments and uses a really interesting phrase which comes from the fathers of the church what are the sacraments which people in early times described as the footprints of the incarnate word, if not the clearest expression of this way in which, which God has chosen to sanctify us and to lead us to heaven? So the, the sacraments, they use ordinary elements, bread and wine, water, oil, gestures, words, ordinary things over and over in all of the seven sacraments in order to lead us to the most extraordinary thing, you know, to become sharers in God's nature. And it happens through a few words, I absolve you from your sins, from um, a word linked with a, a gesture, and this is my body. And over the, the bread. It's so simple, so ordinary. Um, he quotes the Vatican Council, which had just finished. What is this Eucharist which we are about to celebrate, if not the adorable body and blood of our Redeemer, which is offered to us through the lowly matter of this world, wine and bread, through the elements of nature cultivated by man, 
as the recent ecumenical council has reminded us. So the sacraments, you know, they they can show us this method, this paradigm, this structure in which God has opted to reach us through the body, through matter, through ordinary things by which we can reach the extraordinary. We can touch it because we're like that. We're made up of body and soul. We have, you know, we, we eat and drink and at the same time we pray. Uh, we walk from A to B and at the same time we can lift our souls to the spirit, to God and live uh, and yet those two sides of our personality are not two parallel lines they're, they're us There's, and the same way God respects this in the way that he reaches us through very ordinary things and then coming to conclude the homily he, St. Maria suggests a few um, practical ways in which we can um, live, apply this doctrine. How we can actually put it into practice. Firstly, he says that um, sanctify your everyday life. Leave behind false idealisms, fantasies, and what I usually call mystical wishful thinking. If only I hadn't married, if only I had a different job or qualification, if only I had better health, if only I were younger, if only I were older. Instead, turn to the most material and immediate reality, which is where our Lord is. Look at my hands and my feet, said the risen Jesus. Be assured that it is myself. Touch me and see. A spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see that I have. That's the kind of first sort of overall conclusion or resolution to apply this idea, this doctrine of passionately loving the world. The real pain, the real situation, here and now, that's where we have to put ourselves uh, into it. Then he talks about how um, we need to have a lay mentality which he says will lead to three conclusions. Be honourable enough to shoulder your own personal responsibility and freedom. Be Christian enough to respect those brothers in the faith who, in matters of free discussion, propose solutions which differ from yours. And be Catholic enough not to make a tool of our mother, the church, involving her in human uh, factions. And finally, work hard and work well and exercise your civic rights. They all seem to fit into this overall sense of that the world is good and we belong in it and we should feel at home in it and exercise our rights, um, do things as best we can, be ready to succeed and be ready to fail. I remember reading an essay once by a philosopher called How to Fail. And it was all about how, well, anyone can succeed, but there's also something about failing with dignity and style. Because, well, we do fail sometimes, and, uh, well, let's do it with style, with garbo. 
And the final topic that he brings up is a slightly, well, it's not different, but it's just a different angle on this. Uh, and that is the whole idea of the whole reality of human love. He talks about a statue which he had had made for the, um, the University of Navarre. Uh, our, our Lady Mother of Fair Love, you know, to bless the love, the loves of the students who would, and staff who, who would work there. And he has a lovely statue. He had it made by a Roman sculptor and um, blessed by uh, Pope Paul, St. Paul VI in 1965. And then it was shipped to, um, to Navarre, to Pamplona and placed in a shrine there in the university as a kind of at the centre, the heart of the university for people to turn to Our Lady to ask for her help and to particularly to sort of entrust their, their love, their, their hearts to, to her, that they might be free to love in marriage or celibacy or wherever they should be, that Our Lady would be at the heart of that sort of self-giving which love always involves. And um, we could also, I suppose, bring Our Lady into our prayer about bringing, finding God in the midst of the world. St. Josemaria, in his chapter in The Way about Our Lady, talks about her just passing unnoticed. Mary, the most holy mother of God, passes unnoticed as just another woman in her town. Learn from her how to live with naturalness. And she was the mother of God. And yet nobody would have noticed anything particular about her. She was just another woman in the town. And in another point in the same chapter about Mary, he talks about how she's the teacher of the sacrifice that is hidden and silent. See her nearly always in the background, cooperating with her son. She knows, yet says nothing. So hidden and silent sacrifice. So many things that we don't know about her life because they just passed unnoticed. They were just so ordinary. Those many years with Christ from his birth right up to his being at the age of 30 or so heading out to be the Messiah. So many hidden years and they're called hidden because, well, they are hidden, hidden and silent. And yet they speak to us. They speak to us of her faithfulness, her loyalty, her love for her son and for St. Joseph, the way that she expressed her love in the ordinary things of the day, which you would expect as, you know, living in Nazareth, a very hidden village never heard of before in all of the Old Testament. So you can just imagine it was pretty uh, low-key, to say the least. And yet, nothing in Our Lady's life is low-key because you can imagine her just being so much in, you know, in touch with her son, in touch with God, and aware of, with greater faith than anyone has ever had, she was able to touch the divine in the midst of the world. I give you thanks, my God, for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation.
I ask you for help to put them into effect. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.